the Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Chad Lawson, a minimalist composer whose latest EP is Stay on Decca Records. Today on Soundboard, Lawson breaks down his philosophy behind his quiet instrumental music. Lawson spoke to me on Zencaster. Chad, thank you so much for talking with me this afternoon. In your in your case, this evening in mine, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, Ben. It's a pleasure. When I think of your music, I don't like terms, but I definitely think minimalism because I think you employ the minimalist's credo, which is to say that perfection is achieved not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing more to take away. All that said, I feel like you're a minimal minimalist, that you, <laughs> you reduce beyond, <laughs> beyond the, uh, say, garden variety minimalism. Like I would imagine that you know how to resolve a French sixth chord, but I feel like you're never going to put yourself in a position where you have to. Well, you know, only in emergencies. Um, I honestly, space is my favorite note, and, and like I, I know that sounds kind of you know jokish, but I really mean that. Like, space is really where the magic happens, because you know, if you, if all of a sudden you strike a chord, let's see, during those pauses, that is where you hear everything. Visually, I look at it as if you're digging a little hole, you're planting the seed, the seed goes in there, and you're just waiting for that to slowly take root, and that space is nurturing that seed. And it's the same thing uh, for the listener. Because like, you know, I came from a jazz background where like everything is just like, you know, super fast, and let me show you how you know, many chops I can do. And so there was never that time to digest. And so uh, when I was recording an album called The Space Between, um, which is why it's called that, that's where I really felt comfortable in my own skin in the sense of let's let's strike a note and then take a nap and then strike another note because that's where the magic is going to happen. That's where the listener is going to be able to ingest and take in everything that they just heard. And then you can continue. So the space between, let's just call them chords, mm-hmm. the space between the chords, between these changes, you're allowed to ponder these changes in real time. Mm. So good. Does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, let's think about a really great Bob Dylan song. Sure. There'll be two verses. And then there's a verse where, let's say there's a guitar solo or a harmonica solo. And that verse, I think, is where we're processing what he's given us in the verses with words. Right. That, that solo verse is permitting us to reflect on what we've heard, which mm. we can't do if he hits us with another prose-filled Dylan verse. Yeah, exactly. A ghost of electricity howls in the bones of her face. 
Where these visions of Johanna have now taken my place. Well, you know, it's funny. I've actually never thought thought about it this way. But if you look at classical music, usually the first move, movement is rather um, upbeat. The second mm-hmm. one is the calming, almost a ballad. Fast, slow, fast. Exactly. And it's just like, was that intentional? Was that the whole process? I don't know. This is really a, a, actually a, a path I've never gone down before as far as discussion. So the andante is the reflective pause between the the events mm. and that and that three movement form that's yeah. interesting yeah all right so we got that figured out thanks very much <laughs> chad for exactly <laughs> well it, and honestly what really happened is during jazz um it wasn't until i started doing more minimalist kind of music that i began receiving emails and letters of saying hey you know what i'm going through a really difficult time in my life right now and i go home and I lay on the floor and I listen to your music. And for 45 minutes, the world doesn't exist. And I was just like, Whoa. I mean, at that point, it's it's not about Chad Lawson. It's not about what I'm trying to do as an artist. You know, what I refer to it as is I'm trying to impact the heart, not impress the mind. And that really is the core of what I'm trying to do musically. I never got those emails with jazz. I never got that kind of response. And so when I started getting that response with this type of music with minimalism, it was like, you know what, there's really something going on here and I need to dial into this because also it's much more true to my nature as far as just personality wise. You know, I'm I'm so laid back, I walk with a cane. And so like why not, you know, have your music you know resemble that. This is interesting because it sounds like we're venturing a little bit from minimalist territory into Brian Eno mm. music for airports territory. Oh, man. That's classic right there. So for that album, he says, I want this to be music that you can engage with or disengage with equally. Mm. I want you to be able to pay as much attention as you want, or let it turn into background music. Eno is not afraid to let his music recede into the background if that's what you, the listener, want to do with it. And as a composer, I completely agree with that. I'm speaking to you right now from my studio. It's a 10 by 20 room um, with you know a piano, and this is where I create everything except for the last album. And as a composer or a pianist, or however cliche term you want to use, we never really see what happens to the music when it leaves the door, right? Like we have this idea of like, oh, here's a pretty melody. I'm going to record it. And then once it's gone, we have no idea what happens to it in the world. And I think like what Eno is saying is such a great way of him just being open-handed and saying, here's something, I'm going to give it to you, do with it however you please. And I think that's dynamite i mean as me as uh, personally as an artist whatever um i love that approach i love that mindset what is the composing process for you is there one is there something that you always do is there an apply ass to chair principle that you have to operate (laughs) under or can musical ideas strike indeterminately it's so great how it's different for everyone 
I don't write an album until my mind is ready. So I'm not one of those people that sit down and write music every day. I honestly will have to wait until I have about 10 songs in my in my head that all of a sudden is just bugging me so much that I have to get out. Um, take, for instance, the album I mentioned earlier, The Space Between. I wrote that album in a day, and then I recorded it the next day. And that honestly is my process. So with the exception of one song in that album, what was happening is I was writing music for a short film. And at the time, the piano was inside the house, and we have two young children. And so I had placed, this is 2013, right before the whole felt piano trend kind of came along. I had felt in the piano, so to, to soften it, and so I could practice at night. So I'm writing music for this short film. The director came over, and he's like, he just wanted to hear what I was working on. He goes, okay, let me hear what you got. And I strike the first chord, and I had forgotten that the felt was inside the piano. And he was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. I, the sound. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I want to do something a little different, you know, go after this. And he, and he was just like, whatever you're doing, keep doing. I love it. Just go for it. And so he left. I'm like, oh my word. You know, I've been playing piano my entire life. And all of a sudden I have a new instrument before me. And I was just so inspired that I, honestly, goodness, I wrote that album in a day with the exception of one song, which I wrote the following day when I recorded that album. So for me, I'm not one of those people who are like, okay, I'm going to write 45 minutes a day. I honestly have to wait until my mind, my spirit, my soul, however you want to put it into a box, until it's ready. And then I sit down and I write. Ben, to be honest, the last five years or so in music, I feel like, at least in this circle, I miss melody. I don't hear melody much anymore. And it really makes me sad, especially coming from a jazz background where melody is so strong. And then whenever I'm wanting to be inspired with writing, I usually go and I listen to classical music because what's at the forefront? Melody. And so this album, um, Stay, the whole intention was to create the melody. So usually when you write an album, at least for me, you know, you go through and you write down some chords and you put a melody on top of it. And this album, I went the other approach to where I wrote out the melodies of the pieces. And then I went behind and I put the chords in kind of afterwards. But I really wanted to focus on the melody just because I feel like a majority of music right now is just soundtrack be honest and i think yeah, there's or, or loops even. or loops or, or just you know repetitive you know you're like okay that's great um where's the melody there is one one habit i guess that i do um, before i record each album and then as i always put on as i'm going to the studio or i'm just about to start i will put on tom petty's wildflower album because that album 
there's just something like a ray of sunshine from the very first note of that album. I bet you also like the texture of that album, that really organic acoustic so much texture. Well, and Ben Montench, the pianist, I mean, like I I don't want to say I, I idolize him, but I really respect him. And I've read so many articles where he, you know, Tom Petty would look at him and he he would say, Hey man, if you're using more than two fingers, you're using too much. So the, like the the whole idea is is just simplicity, simplicity. What can you do with a little, you know? Talking about having an eye on production, that was Tom Petty. Mm. Those arrangements are scaled back oh. and yet and just so tight. <laughs> like ridiculously tight. Yeah. Tight to a level that I don't think you can get with Pro Tools and yeah. he was using none of that. Yeah. go back to the felt Mm -hmm. that felt on the piano does give you almost a lute quality Mm -hmm. to the music and i think you know tying in with what i think you you like about petty's texture you're into textures as almost as instruments of their own like i notice in um the broad sun Mm -hmm. is that the track there's an almost like asmr piano thing going on because you can you can hear the clickety clack of the keys right exactly sort of the piano equivalent of ocean waves on the beach The Chopin variations, mm-hmm. which we'll come back to, the, the sound of the sustain pedal yeah. clumping down and creating that whoosh, that wash that we all know as pianists, but I think a lot of listeners don't know. Yeah, if you come down hard on a sustain pedal and all the hammers come off at once, right. you get this really beautiful echo. And you use that not quite as a kick drum, but definitely as a percussive effect or, or as an extended technique. All that said, I guess what I'm asking you about here is texture and using texture and extended technique as instruments uh, within your recordings. Basically, the piano is like an orchestra in a box. You know, you have 88 keys, you have two hands, you're, you're pretty outnumbered. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create the sound of an orchestra. And by doing that, how do you make something super rich that technically only has one sound? You know, to your point with the Chopin variations, I wanted the listener to hear the creaks and the cracks and every, I wanted their head to be inside of the piano. And it's funny because you had people that were like, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. And then there were people that were like, what's that swoosh sound? You know, um, I, 
I put the microphones as close to the hammers as I possibly could. And and even during the mastering process, the mastering engineer, he shot me an email and he was like, did you mean to, to do this? And I'm like, yeah, I did. Like I really wanted to make the listener feel like they were inside of the piano. That was the whole intent. And because I'm just wanting to change the dynamics. I'm wanting to change what our perception of this instrument that's been around for so long how can we give it some new paint? How can we give it a new canvas to work with? And so that's that's my goal as far as a pianist is concerned. And, you know, another way of doing texture. So um, I'm a big Bill Evans fan. And the thing like Bill Evans is he used to do these cluster chords. And to get that sound, he would use what is called a minor second, which means you basically have two notes that are directly next to each other which sounds incredibly dissonant. And, you know, if you were to try to create a melody with that, it'd be really difficult. But one day I was just kind of working on his voicings. I was kind of practicing. And I took those two notes. So for right now, I'm playing a D and an E flat. So I took those two notes. And I moved the D, the bottom note, I moved it up an octave. Listen to that. That's unbelievable. It's still the same two notes, and there's still tension there. But now it's absolutely stunning of a sound. Because a lot of artists, what they'll do is they'll actually play a perfect sixth. So, for instance, uh, oh, here, here you go. Um, um, Right, so that melody that's that is, is a perfect six, and so a lot of times in piano music, you you will hear that, and it's a little too pretty from me personally, and so that's when I decided to take that perfect six and change it just by a little bit, and that's where you have that tension. And so personally, I feel like that tension is really where you're also getting that texture because it you do have those two sound waves. It's almost like a blanket, and I just want to wrap myself up in it. So you're turning that minor second into a major seventh, which gives you more space to play with? So good. Listen to you. Absolutely. There you go. Yep. Let's stay with the Chopin variations for a second. Great. I, I played the ones that I had played as a pianist because I felt like I knew them, so I could try to get inside what you were doing, mm-hmm. particularly the... C sharp minor waltz mm, mm-hmm. um, and the C minor prelude, which are which are two of Chopin's greatest hits. Mm-hmm. For those <laughs> for those of you not familiar, and it's really cool how in the C sharp minor you you kind of achieve this dreamscape and a reduction of that B section, the da 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 right, and it's really interesting because you're almost kind of shankering the <laughs> the um the piece but you're enveloping it in these in these textures and echoes and and with strings with these little almost eastern lifts on the violin mm. and it's it's such a, a surprising and delightfully surprising effect well thank you very much that really means a lot uh, there's a there are many layers to this uh, the Chopin conversation we have this young audience we have this young generation that I've nicknamed the Spotify generation 
Sure. They're not album centric. They're just putting all their tracks together. No respect for genre. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny that you bring that up, actually, because I, I can't, that's the kind of side that I like, and we can talk about that in a second. But unfortunately, this is a, a generation that they haven't grown up with maybe a violin in the house or maybe a piano in the house. Or if they have grown up with a piano in the house, they don't know how to turn it on, right? So like they haven't really been introduced to classical music, quote unquote. And so my idea was, what composer could I potentially scale down to bare minimalism and would their work still be beautiful? Would it still be super strong and super rich? And I was like, well, what, what better person to, to try than the poet of the piano? And so I Xerox copied um, a number of Chopin pieces from you know, sheet music. And then I went through and I analyzed them with as like, a, like a jazz chart, like a chord chart. And so I was like, you know, here's F minor, here's B flat, blah, blah, blah. And then with that piece in particular, the C sharp minor, the interesting thing is, as you mentioned, that main melody has six notes. Right? And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a beautiful melody. I decided. I could only keep two of those six notes. Which ones am I going to keep? And would it still stand strong? So we went from to it's still Chopin and it's still his work. But just done in a different way. And that was really honestly it. The whole premise was how can I introduce that? If Chopin were to record an album right now, what would it sound like? Because the thing is, if we wanted to introduce classical music to an audience that had never heard of it before, how would we go about doing that? Let me ask you this question Does Chopin need a stepping stone? People always talk about the barrier to entry for classical music. Is that a real thing? Or is that an elitist thing from times past? Do you have a hobby? Let's say cycling is my hobby. So your very first bike, was it a professional cyclist bike? Absolutely not. Right. But how did you get involved in it, though? I got a smaller bike, and I rode it. Got a Huffy. Probably a Schwinn. Yeah. I had my little red Schwinn. Right. And then I got a dirt bike, and then I got a 10-speed and here we are. Are you saying that Chopin is the 10 speed? And before you ride the 10 speed, you have to get on the Schwinn? Are you are you the Schwinn bike in this analogy? <laughs> you know what? At this point, I, I'm I'm okay. I'm going to take the Eno approach. I'm okay being all of the above or none of the above. Um, my role is to just introduce people to music that I think is beautiful, regardless of who the composer is. And with Chopin and, and, and actually with the Bach album uh, after that, the whole purpose was to, to introduce to a, a young audience. That was, that was my goal. That was my, that was my intent. It's like, you know, you, actually, you, you brought this up a little bit ago. I mean, the thing about genres, obviously vinyl is super trendy right now. Let's look, let's, let's pick this apart. Why? Well, it's very similar to the whole classical thing that I just mentioned earlier. Where it's like this generation that's so into vinyl right now, they haven't grown up with it. It's new to them, right? Whereas like you and I, you know, we kind of grew up with our folks having it. And so it's always around. Now, 
there's a record store analogy that I've kind of come up with before vinyl was cool, which was we would go into a record store and we'd go directly into Tower Records. I would always go straight to jazz. And I never ventured over to gospel or hip hop or country or something like that. I knew what I wanted. I went in, I picked it out and I got it and I left. Never the twain shall meet as far as various genres. That's all changed. That's all changed out of curiosity with the younger audience now, as far as streaming is concerned. Whereas like something can come across your platform and you either give it a thumbs up and a thumbs down and you're not apologetic in either way of if you like the song or not. You're just like, oh, this is really great. I love this. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to come back to it. And now what you're seeing is like this open-mindedness of so many things, not only just with classical music, but crossovers. And just, I bet you, the people that can sing every single word of Adele's music, that if you went up and asked them, hey, what genre is Adele categorized in? They probably would raise an eyebrow and say, I don't know, what's it matter? And I feel like that's kind of where we're seeing classical music in, in a good way. Uh, I feel like that's where we're seeing it begin to go into where there's no longer that idea of like, it has to be three movements of fast, slow, fast, right? You look at someone like John Adams, who's just writing the most unbelievable stuff. And then you see Taylor Swift like tweeting about it. One of my more popular pieces that I wrote uh, called Nocturne in A Minor, it was used as the theme song for a TV show on Vice. And the show was called Black Market. And the show is about like, you know, people that are just yeah how to get stuff yeah exactly and that was literally that was the theme of the show that that classical piece so i think we're really beginning to see instrumental music or classical music however you want to categorize it moving more and more into just the general pop culture and i think it's amazing i think it's tremendous let's stay with the spotify analogy because this is the way we're consuming music Now, before I talk to you, I went on Spotify and I listened to (laughs) a bunch of Chad Lawson. I did not call the publicist at Universal and say, send me, rush me, 10 albums. And, you know, I was doing that 15 years ago, right? So there's a starred playlist in Spotify. And so I think what I hear you saying is kids are just starring stuff and that goes into the playlist. So whether that's that Chad Lawson track I heard on Vice, mm-hmm. or whether that's the Chopin Mazurka that Taylor Swift recommended, or whether it's Adele's latest chart-topping single, right. that all goes into the ocean. And then it's put on shuffle, mm-hmm. and then occasionally it comes around. Right. And maybe the fascination with vinyl from a generation that didn't really grow up with the concept of an album where you had 45 minutes to say what you were going to say. <laughs> Not only that, you had 22 and a half minutes yeah. at a time, right? Yeah. Maybe that tactile experience of dealing with vinyl is appealing for the streaming generation. Yeah, there's so many layers to that. And, and I think also what we're seeing with classical music and kind of calming music, I guess. It lets, I, don't, I don't know if that's like the term that we want to use, but- Are you okay with that term? thousand percent. Thousand percent. If I'm in the elevator with you, yep. what it. kind of music do you do, Chad? What do you write? Um, quiet instrumental music. You know, there was there was an article last year in Rolling Stone, and I think the guy was trying to get my goat, to be honest. And he goes, "Are you okay with your music being sleepy music?" And I was like, "Yeah, 
Absolutely. A thousand percent. It's just like, you know, we have music for everything else. You know, we have Smashing Pumpkins. We have, you know, Drake. Why is why would we look down upon having something to go the opposite direction? I don't know if you've ever watched the Philip Glass um, documentary called Glass. It's I get chills every time I talk about it. In the very opening, it's a scene of a roller coaster. And he goes, there's a lot of music out there. You have the Beatles, you know, you have Bach, you have any list like all these other artists. And he goes, I don't care if you listen to my music. I don't. There's so much music out there. Just go listen to something. And I'm like, that is it right there. I, if you if you want to listen to my music, I'm grateful. I'm super happy. But you know what? I'm a big Nine Inch Nails fan. I love Trent Reznor. I th- think he and Atticus are super creative with scoring. And you know, to think that one person's going to listen to like one artist or one style nonstop—that's that's a tall order, to be honest. So let's talk about Trent Reznor for a second because okay. I think it's related. There's a guy whose music sounds simple. But it's deceptively simple. Oh, very. Yeah. It's not as simple as you think it is. If you sit down, whether you're trying to do a cover of his song or if you're just a dork and you want to figure out what he's what he's actually doing, there's much more that's happening there than meets your ear mm-hmm. once you start dissecting it. Mm-hmm. Let's go further. Johnny Cash covers Trent Reznor's most personal song, Hurt, mm. and he takes the complexity out of it. The sharps, the accidentals, the the one chord change to the uh, you know to the five of five or whatever. He mm-hmm. takes it all out and he makes it a simple bluegrass song, uh, to guitar. He takes out the swearing, and it's a huge hit. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's a huge hit. I don't know the numbers. I, I don't have my Spotify numbers handy, but it may have eclipsed the original, which is saying something because that was not an underground hit in the nineties. That was, that was enormous. Right. Right. right, So, but you are not doing what Trent Reznor is doing. You, I think are actively looking to smooth down those sharp edges. Is that a fair thing to say? That's a great thing to say. Absolutely. <laughs> it is. And and that's the thing. So, so wait, wait, let me yeah, go further. Yeah, please, yeah. So, uh, you know, you were talking about the importance of, of melody and how you're getting back to melody. And I listened to, uh, to Stay today. And I remember when I got to Rain uh, thinking, man, this is like this is like low stakes Mozart. Yes. It sounded like low stakes Mozart to me. God, Ben, your ears are amazing. OK, Rain was one of the very first songs on this album that I wrote. I am so grateful you brought this up. So going back to the idea that everything is melody, at the time when I was um, just about to start writing this album, I actually was playing through a lot of Mozart. Aha! Just exactly. Because I'm a technique junkie. Like I love, I, I, I obsess about it probably too much, to be honest. 
And so I was playing through all these Mozart pieces. And then when the idea of like, oh, you know, what better person to really kind of mimic some melody out of? Well, that's Mozart. And so the idea, here's the main melody of Rain. Super, super, super simple. And then with the chords. That I'm, you have, you have made my week. The fact that Only in the end there do we step into the late 20th, 21st century, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That last resolution is not Mozart, right? I know that's intentional. So tell me about the right. thought process there. Well, I didn't want to like make it a copy of just a- Right, <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, is like during the recording, originally the piece kind of went like this. Because I was trying to mimic raindrops. And then when we would listen to the playback, I'm like, wow, that's just so busy so busy and so then i would go back and i would scale back a little bit more and it still wasn't enough and then finally i was just like geez so i just need to tie my left hand behind my back and that honestly was pretty much what happened is just keeping as simple as really possible going back to your point with the whole tom petty analogy of just like what can i get rid of what is unnecessary let's just cut all the fat out that first version that you played before it got trimmed down, it reminds me of like back in the Baroque days where they would have the harpsichord wailing away while things happen, right? It's too much. It's too much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm, so, I'm really glad you picked up on that. I really appreciate that. You talked about how you have to let all these songs um, sort of come to fruition before you sit down. Are these distinct songs or are they all swimming around together like in a soup? Well, it depends on what the song. So like Rain, for instance, that was a melody that was just driving me nuts until I finally sat down and wrote it out. And then like the space between the very opening track was very similar. So a lot of times I have like some chords, but mostly melodies that are just going through my head. And sometimes I'm like, okay, well, is that one song or are these two different songs? And so as far as writing is concerned, a lot of the times it's something to get in my head. And then I will sit down at the Steinway and, uh, and then go from there. I still take piano lessons. I'm, I've been playing piano for 40 years, and I will always take piano lessons. And what we are really working on right now is ear training, which is something I haven't done in a very, very, very long time. And so it's nice to really get a kick in the pants uh, from my instructor um, about ear training to where it's just like being able to play exactly what I'm hearing or actually to be able to sing what I want to play and then do that at the piano. And it's been incredibly helpful as far as compositions are concerned uh, of just coming up with melody, just going back to that key foundation.
listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Bob Dylan's Visions of Johanna from the Bootleg Series Volume 4, Bob Dylan Live 1966, the Royal Albert Hall Concert on Columbia, and from the title track of Tom Petty's Wildflowers on Warner Brothers. And we heard clips from Chad Lawson performing I Know a Love So True and Fair from The Space Between, The Broad Sun, Nocturne in A Minor from the Piano, and Rain from the EP Stay, out now on Decca Records. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Thank you for listening.